Kevin Shaw was handing out Spanish-language copies of the Constitution at Pierce College in Los Angeles when a university official told him he had to stop. I should have said a college official. That's a community college. Shaw, it seems, was outside the school's designated free speech zone, a space about the size of three parking spaces on the 426-acre campus. School, school policy says people looking to distribute material or obtain signatures must get a permit, must stay within the free speech zone, and must do the work between 9 a.m. and 7.30 p.m. Shaw, who's the president of a libertarian student group, sued. And now he has a powerful ally. The Trump administration this week filed papers supporting Shaw and saying the policy is unconstitutional. With us to talk about the case is Enrique Armijo. He's a professor at Elon University Law School in North Carolina. Enrique, thanks for joining us. Let's start with that, uh, the papers filed by the administration uh, uh, just this week. What's the argument that the Justice Department is making for why this policy is unconstitutional? Well, Attorney General Sessions uh, kind of forecasted the Justice Department's involvement in this case a few weeks back when he gave a speech at Georgetown University talking about uh, what he viewed, uh, and by extension what the Justice Department views, as unconstitutional uh, free speech zones on public college campuses. Uh, The basic argument is that uh, setting out a space within the campus where students can speak um, violates the First Amendment right of those students. Enrique, have courts in the past ruled on these free speech zones and whether or not they are uh, violations of the First Amendment? They have. Uh, There are a few cases on free speech zones, and and unlike in a lot of other um, areas of free speech law, um, the students here have an unblemished record. Uh, I believe every federal court to look at um, a free speech zone uh, at a public university has found it to be unconstitutional. And just really based on this basic idea that the the whole point of the university is to expose students to different perspectives, and and it violates the First Amendment rights of, of students speakers to kind of limit um, when they can say what they want to say. Well, Enrique, what's the best argument that, that a college or university can make in defense of a policy like this? Well, um, there are many good ones. Uh, the, the, the school, certainly at the uh, K-12 through uh, level, public schools have been successful in arguing that um, the restriction of speakers doesn't violate the First Amendment on the ground that that speaker or that speech raises some kind of um, material disturbance with respect to the educational function of the school. So a student can't stand up in the middle of an algebra test and say, uh, I protest algebra, I think it's wrong, or uh, I think it's bad, or I think we should be learning something else. Um, but, but those are the kinds of disruptions that really go to the actual day-to-day uh, teaching and operation of the university. Uh, free speech zones, courts have uniformly found, are not that kind of disruption where, where the court will accept interference with student speech in this way. There seems to be a trend. Lawmakers in Colorado and Utah have approved bills that ban free speech zones. Do you see a trend in across the nation in, in banning the zones and expanding um, protections for free speech on public campuses? I do, and I think that's a good thing. And, and it really is 
kind of in the larger context of some things that have happened um, at, at Berkeley and at some other schools where it's kind of a, a very much a hot topic on college campuses right now, the idea that campuses should not discriminate um, with respect to um, who student groups bring on campus and how those speakers are treated. Uh, in my view, this is a very positive uh, thing for the First Amendment because after all, as I said, and as the cases have said, the whole point of college is to really expose students to different perspectives. And, 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 and college administrators and community college administrators should really see that as, as their primary goal here. All right. Let me try to give uh, my best defense of, of this policy. Um, so uh, the government uh, does have the, the ability to, to regulate the time, place, and manner of speech. And even though uh, this area on this campus is, is both very small and designated as a free speech zone, it doesn't mean you can't speak other places. It just means that you can't distribute things uh, everywhere on campus, and it means you uh, can't obtain signatures everywhere on campus. So why isn't there at least a, an argument that this is just a time, place, and manner restriction? Well, the, the the doctrine of time, place, and manner, which, as you say, is really aimed not just um, not at speech, but in the the form that that speech takes. So that the argument there is, as you said, uh, it's okay to pass um, bans on leafleting because uh, the the concern there is litter, not what's in the leaflet. Well, I, I think those arguments tend to fall apart um, in in. Uh, college environments of open campuses where students are interacting on a range of other issues and talking about all kinds of other things as well. And, and when courts look at these things, they actually start um, with the whole idea of a free speech zone. And, and federal courts have often said, um, does that by necessarily by implication mean that the rest of the campus is an unfree speech zone. Uh, and and, and once, a, once an opinion kind of starts like that, you know that the, that the restriction in question is doomed to fail. Enrique, in, in some of the cases earlier in the year, there were invitations to controversial speakers, and the schools wanted to limit the appearance to certain places because they feared there might be some violence. In that area is the school in the have a better case or are they in the right very much so. I mean, the, 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 for 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 the attorney general to get involved in this particular case is is honestly a bit of a layup. I mean, the 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 speech at Georgetown talked about a lot of things, June. It didn't just talk about uh, free 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 speech zones. It talked about the the incidents that you're referencing, uh, the 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 free speech week at Berkeley, and some of these much more contentious issues uh, where where uh, where speakers have been invited by uh, student groups and have been shouted down and. There have been protests, and some of those protests have turned violent. Um, and, and university administrators are in a very tricky position. They have very limited resources. So some of them, you know, some of the bigger schools can say, okay, we can handle um, several hundred thousand dollars worth of security to basically secure the speaker and the people who want to listen to the speaker's right to speak. But it gets a lot more difficult when you have smaller campuses, uh, smaller public campuses who bring on speakers who are controversial and who uh, tend to elicit kind of very, very adverse reactions and sometimes violence. And, and I think what school administrators are finding is they're being critiqued for it, but if they very narrowly um, state that the reason for kind of revoking an invitation is not because of what the speaker is going to say, or not even really because the speaker is controversial, but because we are not equipped to 
keep our students safe in the event of violent protests? Then the First Amendment questions become a lot more complicated. And I would actually be surprised if the Trump administration got involved in one of those cases, uh, despite what the attorney general said at Georgetown. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank our guest, Enrique Armijo, a professor at Elon University School of Law. That's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks to our technical director, Chris Tricomi, and our producer, David Sutterman. You can find more legal news at BloombergLaw.com and BloombergBNA.com, plus a great website for the legal community at BigLawBusiness.com. Coming up on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Markets with Corey Johnson and Carol Masser. Stay tuned for that and more here on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.